0: All right, well, if you turn to uh, James, Chapter 1, we're going to continue on in our series through the book of James. Um, I imagine we all know the experience of getting a new toy, whether as a kid or as an adult, um, and realizing pretty quickly that it was not all it cracked up to be in the marketing and finding that the, the joy and the aura of expectation fades pretty quickly, and then you need another new toy, right? Or perhaps getting a, a raise, or seeing a, your business uh, grow and succeed, or getting to a point financially that you've always dreamed of, and then finding that it doesn't solve all of the difficulties and, and struggles that you thought it might, or that you hoped it might. Or perhaps a little bit differently, but still on the same track. Uh, many of you follow sports teams, and uh, you, as you get emotionally invested in a, a sports team, uh, you get excited. Um, but without fail, at some point that sports team lets you down, and your emotions go with it. And they go through whole seasons and and multiple seasons and years of of rebuilding and frustration. Seattle Mariners, anyone? And it's heart-wrenching. Well, what am I getting at here? Well, there is an elusiveness, a a grasping at the mist quality to much that our hearts run after in this life, right? All of the products, the experiences, the, the diets, the lifestyle changes that promise to bring satisfaction and sufficiency don't usually deliver like we thought. We are continually let down. As you may recall, this is something that God, through his word, talks about quite often and warns us of. And today we're going to cover a couple of those passages in the book of James, one in chapter one and one in chapter five. Um, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we started, James is kind of like the Proverbs, in a way, of the New Testament. And so there's these um, these separate passages. Uh, there's these nuggets of wisdom throughout it that are that are kind of packed right up t- on top of one another without a lot of logical sequence in between, kind of like in the Proverbs. And so we find a couple of these passages, not next to each other in Proverbs, but in different parts. So we're going to cover both of them today. Um, I'm going to read all the verses up front, and then we'll kind of uh, work through them, pull from them as we go on the topic of uh, this idea of the fading, elusive glory of particularly wealth and self-indulgence. The fading glory of wealth and self-indulgence. So, a few verses in chapter 1. James 1, starting at verse 9, says this, "'Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation "'and the rich in his humiliation, "'because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, "'for the sun rises with, it, with its scorching heat "'and withers the grass. "'Its flower falls and its beauty perishes.'" so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And then jump to chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slatter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So both of these passages are are warnings, right? Right? These are warning passages, and they're warnings particularly about um, the, love of, the danger of the love of wealth, and money, and of self-indulgence, just living for yourself. And if you look closely, there's, there's kind of two aspects to this warning. One has to do with the danger of the love of money before God and in the light of eternity. And so kind of a spiritual um, danger of loving and trusting in wealth. And then one has to do with the danger of the love of wealth towards one another, towards our brothers and sisters, as we are in self-focused, self-indulgent, the effects that that has on those around us. Okay, so we're going to work through each of these in turn. So the first you find in chapter 1. So let me read a couple verses again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So this isn't about wealth and poverty as social or political or cultural issues per se, but about wealth and poverty in light of eternity, in light of God as spiritual issues. The the word lowly here means one who is undistinguished or common or insignificant, humble, gentle, And so a lowly brother or sister is one who has little influence or significance or power in the eyes of the world. And this can come in various forms, right? And probably to a degree, we all feel this in some sense. So you perhaps may feel some financial um, lowliness, that your financial situation is not uh, at the same level of, uh, as others and the opportunities you have. Perhaps intellectually, you feel lowly. You just don't have the um, uh, comprehension and ability to converse at the same level or perhaps with the same language as others. Perhaps you feel socially lowly, that you don't have the quick wit and the charisma and the confidence that, that others around you have. And, and even, I think, spiritually, we can feel spiritually lowly, like I don't have the, the biblical knowledge, the, the experience, that I haven't built up the devotional habits, uh, just the, the experience of being a, a Christian and the, all of the knowledge that comes along with that as others do, and I, so I feel lowly or insignificant, like I don't have as much to offer. This then is contrasted with the rich, Now, in context here, this primarily has to do with uh, the financially uh, wealthy and material wealthy, but we should also think of all of the ways that we trust in what we have, trust in what we can do, trust in our influence or opportunities, even the respect we have. Now, when we think of these categories, I think our tendency is to put other people in them. We think of those more wealthy than ourselves or less wealthy than ourselves. Like we kind of define them uh, subjectively, right? And and we're hesitant or slow to put ourselves in these categories. And perhaps we do not hear the, the weight of verses like this. And so we're wise to consider the ways that each of us may be rich, and each of us may be lowly. So consider the the warnings here and and think about yourself. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Um, Now, this is kind of a command. You who are lowly, boast in your exaltation. In whatever way you, Christian, find yourself lowly and insignificant in this world, See to it that, or make it your effort, make it your aim, not to despair about that, not to find, um, not to make much of your humble position, not to find your identity in that, but hope confidently and joyfully in the glory to come, and then the glory that is even yours now in Christ Jesus. Similarly, let the rich boast in his... Humiliation or being made low, how that could be translated. Let the rich boast in being made low. And so what in whatever way, Christian, you find yourself to have significance, to have power and success in the world, see to it that, make it your aim not to make much of that. Not to make much of your wealth and success and significance in the eyes of the world But realize that it is ultimately empty and fleeting. And cling desperately to God in Christ and who you are in him. And so really, the the invitation, the command is the same on both sides, right? To both the rich and to the poor, don't make much of your material or financial situation or your position or standing in the world. Both riches and poverty can be snares, can be temptations for Christians. On the one hand, riches can make us blind to the the priority of God. It can make us numb to the the presence and the priority and our desperate need for God. Poverty and insignificance can, uh, can keep us bitter and discontent and despairing, right, and keep us from being content in God, feeling like we have no worth in life. In reality, both of these temptations um, adopt the world's view of what matters most, the world's view of significance and success. Uh, Both of them tempt us to see ourselves in merely humanistic, uh, material terms. What do you have? What's your family like? What have you accomplished? What have you done? Well, what does God have to say about this? How does, God's, um, how does God work differently? Well, God's words in Jeremiah strike at the very heart of this and are helpful for us to, to reflect on. Um, he says through Jeremiah, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Again, don't make much of your wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So what God does is not just reverse the tables as some of the philosophies and systems of the world want to do, and just kind of reverse it like this, but completely change the value system, right? Who you are is not determined by how you measure up to the world's systems and priorities. Who you are is not determined by what others think about you, whether in school, at work, at home, in in your neighborhood, in your families. And who you are is not even determined by how you think or feel about yourself, which is often the turn that is done in a secular sense. Well, don't let those people tell you who you are. You define yourself as you want. That's not what's happening here. No, your identity and worth and hope is in being a child of God, in knowing the Lord and being known by the Lord who is good and loving and sovereign over all things. What God does is replace the identifying labels that the word world places on you, or ta- replace the identifying labels that we place on ourselves and gives us an identifying label from, from himself, from our Creator God. And so our identity and worth and our standing and confidence are no longer in the shifting sands of what we feel on any given day or what others may say about us and what we may or may not accomplish in this world. But our identity and worth and standing and confidence are in the firm foundation of God. Yes. <laughs> Amen. And then there is a second aspect to this warning here. It's not only a spiritual warning about wealth, but it goes on. There's also a warning about the danger a love of wealth, and a a life of self-indulgence poses to those around us. It causes us to not love others. So chapter 5, We read verses 4 to 6 again. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So the situation described here is one, um, in context, there are wealthy landowners, and uh, they are a source of oppression and injustice towards the poor. They they are resolutely set on their um, pursuit of success and comfort and self-indulgence and luxury and... If others are in the way, so be it. If others can be used towards that end, so be it. And so they take advantage of and cheat others. Perhaps if they have the ability they even create laws. So this is all legal. Now, this has specific relevance, I, I think, towards those of uh, those of us, those of you who are business owners or are in management positions. In those situations, what are what is your attitude towards your employees, towards those who are under your authority? Um, do they thank God for you and see God's grace in you, or are they like these people crying out to God against you? Do you do more than is expected for them because you actually care for them, or are they just pawns or tools to help you get where or your business get where you want it to get. But then the larger principle here certainly has relevance for all of us. In what ways are we concerned with only securing a life of luxury and self-indulgence, even a life of security and control? And what happens as a result of this, of this pursuit? Are we merely using those around us for personal ends? Do others become disposable objects on our march to get what we want? Um, I'll just be honest that in ministry, in church leadership, this is a constant temptation. Um, Of course, you want to see a church grow and thrive, but... Does that come at the expense of not caring for people? Are people just opportunities or things to be used for personal gain, for ministry success and grandizement, or whatever? Um, That temptation, if you find yourself in leadership of any kinds, including ministry, is always there. So, we have these warnings. Be aware of the love and pursuit of wealth. Beware of staking your identity, staking all of your bets on what you possess or how the world sees you or doesn't see you, what you have or what you wish you had. So, that's the content of the warnings, but we don't really get that far without having some explanation for these warnings right just as if we we teach our kids not to cross the street without us but as they get older they want to know why right and this i mean this is true with many things when our kids are young we we don't have to explain all the reasons you just need to listen but as they get older they they need and want reasons for the things that we tell them because they can comprehend them and so we explain it to them um Similarly, if if somebody was to try to convince you to invest your money in something, uh, you would want a reason. Like, why am I supposed to do this? And here, this is particularly relevant. Having some explanation, some reason for obeying Scripture in this aspect is particularly relevant because it seems like wealth and success and significance really do bring life and joy and happiness. Like that message is out there, but also in here all the time, every day. It seems that wealth and comfort and self-indulgence really bring some happiness and pleasure. And they do bring some happiness and pleasure. And so it's clear we need a reason and quite a convincing one if we are to live, if we are to give up this quest for wealth and significance and self-indulgence. We need a powerful reason and a powerful something to actually break the tether of our hearts to living for these things from our universal love of money and self. And so even in these verses, we find a few reasons that we should and we can fight against this. This push, this desire, this message that the good life looks like this. That who you are, it is defined by this So three reasons which we find in these verses. First, the fleeting and empty nature of riches. The fleeting and empty nature of riches. So look at particularly the second half of that chapter one passage. Um, Let the lowly boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation. And then here's a reason. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And again, another reason. for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls And its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Um, Similarly, in chapter 5, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Now, you may recognize this language before. Uh, Jesus says essentially the same thing in Matthew 6. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. I imagine all of your lawns right now are faded. All of your grass has withered. I tried for a, a few weeks, hopelessly, to keep one of our, our back lawn green, and, and that was a losing effort. Just like the f- glory of our favorite sports team or the glory of, of making advances in our careers and getting new toys or new houses, uh, it fades. The glory of wealth. Fades. Perhaps you may be able to find, to make it through a few years feeling content and satisfied in what you have. Perhaps you can push off the nagging feelings that, and the nagging sense that you really don't have the control that you thought you had or that you'd like to have. You really don't have the power to sustain yourself that you thought you had and push off the, the sense of eternity and the weight of eternity and the significance of that. But but doing so is not a good thing, right? That That is a numbing of yourself to what really is and what really matters and what really lasts. And it's placing all of your bets on something that, fades like the grass in the summer. You know, uh, throughout Scripture, we are encouraged to, to step back and, and expand our view and to see things in light of eternity, but also in light of what matters most and who God is. Riches and wealth and power and influence and significance Fade. A second reason for these warnings we find here is the threat of judgment of the ungodly. So in the first part of chapter 5, we see this, says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Uh, so this moves beyond a warning to Christians who are, who are tempted by riches to, to a warning to those who fail to truly come to God because of their pursuit of wealth. They, they, they spend their lives building up, laying up treasure upon treasure when they should have been concerned about the things of God. And what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, as Jesus says. Again, riches and comforts and experiences and and significance and respect cannot save us, cannot secure us, cannot justify us, cannot protect us. Uh, They're not bad things, but if we put our trust in them, if we become numb to the things, to the priorities and presence of God by them, they will let us down and they will leave us empty and ashamed. As Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And is one we continually, especially in our culture, need to be aware of and in our hearts. But there's one more warning. There's one more reason for these warnings here. And it is the most necessary and the deepest, and the most, and and the sweetest one. What is implied throughout here, and what is specifically stated many other places in Scripture is this, is that there is something better. Right? There is something sweeter, more satisfying, more lovely, more lasting, more worthy to live for than Wealth and significance and self indulgence. It is not just a negative, don't desire these things or seek after these things. There is necessarily the positive, look at this thing that is so much better. And so the answer to this is not simply convincing ourselves that the wealth and comforts of the world are empty and fleeting, and so, you know what, just become a minimalist, just get a tiny house, rail against materialism and, and consumerism, no, that's not enough. Anyone can do that, you, but you're really just exchanging one self-focused idol for another. The answer is also not simply trying to change self-will a change in your desires and just trying to convince yourself that you really don't want wealth. You really don't want to be happy. See how that goes. Rather, the answer is seen that there is something more attractive and more satisfying and more worthy and more secure for us. The answer is seen who God is and what he's done for us is better than all that the world offers. Isn't this what Jesus gets at in his um, couple parables on treasure and the, and the great pearl? Right, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found up and covered. Found and covered up, then in his joy, you know, not in begrudgery, like uh in his joy he goes and sells everything that he has joyfully, willingly, and so that he can buy that field and get the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold, again, all that he had, and bought it, because it was desirous and, and worthy and satisfying. This idea is explained um, brilliantly by an 18th century Scottish or 19th century Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers um, in, a, in a sermon titled The It's a Long Word, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's an amazing sermon that you should go read. Uh, but let me read just a little bit of it for you. He, he, he writes this There are two ways in which one may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world. Either by demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that is not worthy of it. That is, to just say, ah, you don't really want those things. Just a negative. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. From the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong wrong affection that domineers over it. We must see, we must see that God and all that He offers us in Christ is better is more satisfying, more joy-inducing, more significant than everything the world offers us. We must be convinced that God is good, and that there is life and joy in him. Now, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to explain how Christ is better, And another altogether to experience it and to know that because we've tested it and we've lived it out, Um, which is what you do, which is what I hope you do in your life. But for our purposes, let me briefly explain just some of the ways that what God calls us to and invites us into in Christ is better than what the world offers us. First, Christ effectively deals with our sin, guilt, and shame. Now, the world also tries to do this. The world, in many ways, tries to deal with the problem of sin and guilt and shame, um, including by trying to convince ourselves that there is no such thing as sin, guilt, and shame. And so just ignore that thought and push that away and tell yourself that you're better than that. But what God God does in the person and work of Christ is, first off, Fully acknowledge the depth and the vileness of our sin and our guilt and shame and then completely and sufficiently deal with it on the cross. And so it no longer stands against us. We are no longer under judgment or condemnation. And the only one one whose judgment of us really matters is now fully and finally for us and with us and working for our good. Secondly, and relatedly, Christ loves you fully and eternally. And and not just with a a pithy or powerless kind of love, but with a full-orbed joy and delight and um, embrace of you, finding pleasure in you, committing to you. And this isn't just after he saw your Instagram polished self. This is after he saw the depths of your heart and knew everything about you and still committed himself to you. Third, Christ gives you the desires and the strength to change. Um, becoming a Christian is not simply just making a decision that then you have to keep up with, although it involves a decision, but it also involves God giving the Holy Spirit to live in you who begins immediately to, to change you and to give you new desires and, and affections and, and strength. From the moment you trust in Christ, God begins to really change you from the inside out and bear good fruit in you and you are not living in your own strength and living with your own endurance. Fourth, Christ or reorients you to live for him rather than yourself. Becoming a Christian is not simply about having adopting some new beliefs or new habits. I guess I go to church now on Sundays or new morals. I can't do that anymore. Involves those things, but it is over and above all of that and underneath all of that, a change in Lord. That you are no longer king and Lord of your own life, but Christ is and he is more worthy and your life is lived for him. And then fifth and lastly, Christ gives you a new family in which to live out your new identity. And one of the reasons that that matters is because this view, the Christian view of wealth and significance and self-indulgence is constantly a tension with the world we live in and constantly attention tension with so much that remains in our hearts. And, I mean, it's for not for no reason the Bible calls us ex- things like exiles, that we are not and we do not feel at home. And the church community And I don't just mean Sunday mornings, although that's a significant part about it, but all of the ways in which our lives um, come together and we, we share and walk with one another, the church community is to be a foretaste of our true home, of the kingdom of God to come. We remind one another that God is sovereign over all and that we are defined first and foremost by him. We reminded one another that the promises of wealth and self-indulgence and worldly significance are fleeting and empty. God's love is better. And then we we encourage and exhort one another, and we are encouraged and exhorted by the faith and the endurance and the the bearing of fruit of one another. We need to... The witness of others, we need the the presence of others to live in such a radically counter-cultural way. But first and foremost, we need God's Spirit in us. And so, may God open our eyes to see that He is better, He is more glorious, more worthy, more satisfying than anything else. Convince us that in our hearts, in our minds, and then may we, as um, as a body, push one another on in that, and remind one another of that. Let's pray.